The online advertising industry is a giant casino. Giant technology companies are the casino owners. Online publishers are the casino employees. The brand advertisers are the victims who keep returning to the casino to lose their money. And the small ad tech companies are the sharks who make lots of money exploiting the inefficiencies of the system. One of these smaller ad tech companies is called eZanga. eZanga sells pre-filtered traffic. Pre-filtered traffic means traffic that will pass through bot detection filters. A publisher can purchase traffic to their website so that the ads on that website get viewed. eZanga describes this technology as marketing and has won a giant contract with the United States government to handle the advertising for the GSA. Advertising fraud does not just promote misinformation. It is now taking our tax dollars and spending it on paid traffic. If any of this is confusing to you, don't worry. We explain it all in today's episode with Shalin Dar, who is the advertising fraud expert who wrote a detailed report about Izanga and its contract with the U.S. government. Shalin was previously on the show to give an overview of ad fraud and what his work as an ad fraud investigator entails. He works at The Dar Method, a company he started to do consulting in advertising fraud. And it's a great business because almost nobody talks about this stuff. And the brands really want to hear about it. Also, Shalin will be a speaker at our third meetup, which is Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is fraud and risk in software, and you're going to hear about some fraud today in this episode, and you're going to hear about fraud from Shalin when he talks at the meetup. We're going to have some great food, we're going to have engaging speakers, including Shalin and a speaker from Coinbase. We're going to have a friendly intellectual atmosphere, and we hope to see you there. To find out more, you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup. Shalin Dar is an advertising fraud consultant with the Dar Method. Shalin, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me back, Jeff. Advertising fraud is a serious problem, as we both know. It takes money from internet publishers, and it fills our news feeds with false information. On Software Engineering Daily, we've done many shows about ad fraud, including a previous one with you as a guest. But some listeners don't know about advertising fraud. Give us an overview for what advertising fraud is. So advertising fraud, the general scope, entails all types of devious, nefarious practices where advertising dollars are spent on media that will never return any benefit to the advertiser. So there's no ROI for the marketer that's spending the dollars on media. So that can happen with robotic traffic visiting a site, That can happen with ad network falsely taking credit for an app install that happened organically, or it can happen with, you know, so let's say an advertiser is targeting a specific demographic, but the ads are actually shown on sites that don't serve that demographic. So all these different things come under the umbrella of what we call ad fraud. That sounds like something that only affects marketers. It only affects big brands that are blasting their advertisements all over the internet. Explain why ad fraud actually affects all of us. So the reason that we get to consume so much 
content online for free is because a lot of it is advertiser supported. And if advertisers begin to have lack of faith in the integrity of online media, there's obviously the danger that they start pulling their dollars, which means that our content providers have to start charging us. And I think that's something that definitely affects the wide consumer base. The other thing is, you know, what affects these websites with ad fraud, let's say specifically with these fraudulent sites that run on robotic traffic, is that those are dollars that should be going to the legitimate sites that have real human visitors, and they are making less money than they truly should. So that creates, you know, a different dynamic of incentives that can lead to bad practices in the long run. There's almost nobody in the technology industry who has any incentive to report the truth about advertising fraud. Explain why that is. So we're trying to change that because the reason that people don't feel the need or feel an incentive to report it is because they feel that they would be individually blamed for exposing or letting the market know that it was in their network or their platform. But I always push people to you know, kind of look at it as this is a systemic problem and you can actually look better than your competition if you come out ahead of it and acknowledge that the problem is there and then create a process to find a solution rather than kind of hiding in the back and saying, oh no, this is not an issue and kind of sticking our heads in the sand. There are some bot detection companies who sell products that claim to be able to detect and stop bot traffic. Do these companies have an incentive to tell the truth? Depends on, uh, depends on which company you're talking about. There's a lot of companies in that space that do operate with a lot of integrity. They have the best intentions both on their sales side and their engineering teams. You know, Both sides are working hard. It really just becomes a case-by-case basis of what is the true operation in the background of the company. The mainstream press has done some reporting on advertising fraud. There was the story from the New York Times about MethBot, and this story described ad fraud as a scheme that is committed by Russian hackers and cyber criminals. As you and I know, that's an incomplete version of the truth. In reality, ad fraud actually involves mainstream publishers, it involves big-name advertising networks, giant tech companies, everyday these everyday names and tech companies that we know, many other organizations. The Russian hackers are just a symptom of the institutional structure of online advertising. I grew up playing poker. I understand the concept of a whale that is the sucker who is gambling a lot and losing a lot. The brands are the whales. The giant brands that are blasting the internet with their advertisements, they are the whales. Online advertising is a giant casino built to exploit brands with a lot of money to spend. And Russian hackers are just hustlers that are trying to make a buck. They did not invent the games that everyone is playing. The technology companies invented the casinos. How accurate is that analogy? I would agree with that. Okay. Now, you're an ad fraud consultant. Well, go ahead. So, you know, this this need for extra traffic without having scrutiny or oversight practices in place to check whether it's human or not started way before, you know, we had all these, you know, 
the invent of bot detection and you know all these discussions about fraud. So you know as soon as pay-per-click started, you see the rise of affiliate marketers who deliver clicks and you know there's like four steps of different traffic vendors away from the actual advertiser that are delivering these quote unquote results. So, you know, everything was based on clicks and that was such an easy metric to fake that the existence of this fraudulent traffic kind of got built into the foundation of advertising. So I feel I'm very, very confident that we have a way overinflated idea of the true supply of advertising online. Meaning the true supply of people that are viewing ads, human traffic, right? You're an ad fraud consultant. You make your money by going to brands and explaining to them that their ad dollars are spent on bots. I am a journalist, so I benefit from salacious stories. You and I are telling a story that is very much out of alignment with any story that a large tech company tells, or for that matter, any story that, frankly, a journalist tells. I mean, I've really tried to read the journalism around this topic, and it's vapid, frankly. Do the listeners have any reason to trust us over the claims that are made by the big tech companies and the writing from journalists who have surveyed this topic? You know, this whole trust thing, it goes back to, (laughs) can the claims be supported? I don't like to put out any claims that I don't back up with evidence. And if there's any, like, evidence with previous reports that I've put out that you know, the report doesn't include all the details. I've always welcomed people to come reach out to me and I will give them the extra details that I just can't have publicly available online. So, you know, I get that, you know, there is skepticism, definitely been called a fear monger in the past because people say that I try to make the problem look bigger than it is. But, you know, it's, it's not that I have any incentive to create fear because I'm not selling, you know, I'm not selling you a perfect solution. I'm telling people that there's always going to be fraud in advertising, just like there's always fraud and deception in any industry. It's just about minimizing your risk. And anybody that says they have a 100% fraud-free guarantee, I think is either misinformed or is consciously making, you know, false claims. So the reason, you know, people can be skeptical on both sides, and I understand it. I think skepticism is healthy, but... I think if somebody's making a claim, you should always look into it, and I've made it a point to always back up my claims with evidence. And it's important to note that neither of us is saying that advertising cannot work. You know, just like in a casino, there are some winners, and sometimes the whales win. Sometimes, you know, you blast out, you know, a million dollars worth of advertising, and $50,000 worth of it actually hits a human. So in that sense, it this hey, the advertising actually is working. So this is this is the mentality, and this is kind of the resistance to addressing fraud. Is like I said before, we have this artificially inflated level of supply, real human valuable supply. I think there's an artificially deflated return on investment based on that. So so many advertisers have said, okay, well this is I'm used to this number that I'm spending on advertising, and I'm used to getting this supposed return on it. And I'm okay with that as long as it stays that way. What my issue with that is, is when you do an audit and you find out that you're actually spending X amount on very suspicious advertising supply or inventory, it's like saying, 
You know, if it's like a person saying that I order two steaks whenever I go out. And, you know, now that, you know, I thought I was only wasting a little bit and it was fine because I still end up full. And I'm showing you that you could order half of what you're ordering and still end up full. Why would you continue to order the other half of that meal if it just gets ends up getting thrown away? So because my manager's it's about paying showing, for it. Right. It's not your own money. It's your client's money or your company. Like, so, you know, this really like when it really hits down is when you see small businesses being affected by this because global brands end up, you know, doing fixed marketing budgets every year. So the corporation says, okay, we're going to, you know, allot $10 million to advertising this year. So the CMO takes that budget. He says, okay, you know, she says, we're going to take $5 million and spend it on digital. And now that $5 million needs to be spent. Otherwise, they get a lower budget the next year. So they are incentivized as a marketing department to spend all of it. And then they take that to the agency who takes a margin of that $5 million, And they are incentivized to make sure it all gets spent. There's not anybody in that chain, in that supply chain, that's incentivized to make sure, at least currently, make sure that it's being spent safely and spent conservatively. That's just, you know, it's not part of the structure right now. But year over year over year, people continue to spend money on advertising because it does seem to work. It's just that, can we have a higher ROI? Can we make sure that publishers are, you know, real publishers with real human audiences are being rewarded properly and just given higher rates based on the same budget and cut out the spend that goes to the fraudulent practices. The big tech companies that we could name off the top of our head, they're certainly complicit here, but they are really hard to scrutinize from the outside looking in. I wish there were an insider from one of these companies that would come forward and talk about this. I've tried to talk to these big companies. They basically will will not discuss this at all. But there is a giant ecosystem of small ad tech companies, and these companies are a little more porous. You published a report recently about a company called Ezanga, E-Z-A-N-G-A, and Ezanga has won a contract from the federal government of the United States for online advertising. In your report, you describe how eZanga, quote, generates, sources, and sells fraudulent web visits and clicks. This is a huge concern. Tax dollars are now potentially going to be spent on fraudulent advertising activity, end quote. We're going to unpack this whole scheme, and let's start with Ezanga. What is Ezanga? Ezanga, as far as I've known it, and until this year, has been a online ad network. So they sell web visits on a per-click basis. My first exposure to the company was in the XML search feed times. So basically, you get a search feed, which means that, you know, let's take a Yahoo search feed, for example, that's, you know, based on XML code. I put that code on my page, and now whenever a user visits my page and types a keyword into a search bar, it will return the Yahoo results of advertisers for that area, wherever that user is searching from. So I have Shallon's localdirectory.com, and I have visitors coming to the site, and whenever they 
You know, let's take San Francisco, for example. Somebody in the outer Richmond of San Francisco comes to my site, types in local dentist, and they get the results that Yahoo would have given them for local dentists if they search from the same IP address. So that was basically a great channel for people to send keyword-based bots that would go to a search page, type in a keyword, and look at the results and click on a few of them and generate a pay-per-click that, you know, let's say Yahoo is paying a dollar fifty. You know, they're getting two dollars from the advertiser. They're paying a dollar fifty to the basic ad network. Their next in line is getting a dollar, and somebody at the end is getting fifty cents. So that money changes hands. Everybody takes a cut, and nobody's complaining. So that was my first exposure: is seeing them as a pay-per-click network for search ads. Then got into the rise of pre-filtered traffic, and they were selling pre-filtered traffic for websites. So you can buy traffic that's geared to pass the integral ad science filter or the double verify filter or forensic or moat or pixelate. And they sold that at subpenny prices. So, you know, less than one cent per click. The lowest I saw was four tenths of a cent per click. So subpenny prices for basically unlimited amounts of traffic. And they include this in the report screenshot from their platform where it looks like it's a search ad there's a title, there's subtext, and then there's a click URL. And that's all well and good, but my basic test, you know, just as a, you know, not like a technical test of the traffic, but my basic test was I'm just gonna type in gibberish into the text ad and see if I get the same amount of clicks. And so I just banged on my keyboard and put in nonsense as the text <laughs> search, and I still got the same amount of clicks. And that's a very easy test to do is, you know, okay, I'm posting a supposed search ad for film reviews and I'm getting, you know, hundreds of thousands of clicks every day. But, you know, somebody could still, with the stretch of their imagination, say, okay, that could be legitimate. So I just typed in nonsense and I was still getting the same level of clicks. And so, you know, it's very easy to tell that way that it's all robotically generated. Let's break down a little bit further what pre-filtered traffic is. You mentioned some things like Moat and some other filtering companies. Describe in more detail what is pre-filtered traffic and also that term traffic. That may, even that term may be unfamiliar to people. Why do you use that word traffic? So web traffic is basically the term used for successive web sessions on a page. So when you're buying web traffic, you're buying visits to your page. Okay. So talk about pre-filtered traffic. Pre-filter traffic is, it's a reaction to the rise of bot detection filters. So this is a big misconception, you know, on the advertiser side at least, and I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of people confused about this generally, is it's not that these companies say that this is definitely a human, and so we're going to let it through. You're talking about companies like like Moat or... Moat or integral ad science or, you know, wide ops, double verify, all the, you know, leading bot detection companies. Right, so you have a user that hits a page and you have a blob of JavaScript on that page and it will check if that user is probably a bot or or hopefully a non-bot. And what, does it give you some probabilistic estimation? So they're basically, what they are able to do is, based on the information and the research that they do, is come up with a way to say, this is definitely a bot. And if it's not definitely a bot, then it passes through. 
it can be labeled as some degree of suspicious, but that's what the blocking is based on is, is this definitely a bot by our standards? Not, is this not a human? Do you get like, do you, there's right. that. So if there's like a 20% chance that it's a human, then it will get through. So that varies for every company. Okay, I can't sure. say that they let it in for certain degrees of confidence, but that's the difference is they're letting things through if it's you know not definitely a bot. If by their standards, it's definitely a bot, that's what it gets blocked. It's not that they're letting things through based on verifying that it's a human. So you mentioned being able to buy this pre-filtered traffic for a specific website. Can I buy this traffic to come to any website that I have? Any website, yes. Okay, so I can go to eZanga and I can say, I want this much traffic directed towards my site. Or you could send it to the Wall Street Journal, or you could send it to CNN, you could send it to, you know, Breitbart, you can send it to eBay, you can send it wherever you want, as long as you're the one paying for it. Hmm. So Ezanga just says, this is pre-filtered traffic, it's traffic that if this traffic hits a page, it will evade the filters that Moat or Integral Ad Science, these bot detection companies, have put up, and so... You can have these bots, I mean, I'm sorry, this traffic, click on anything on this web page. You could just tell it to do stuff. Yeah, basically, they are purporting that we have traffic that if you are being detected by a certain filter, this traffic will pass that filter. Mm -hmm. And that is mostly done in the hopes of generating ad revenue based mm -hmm. on these you know, real-time bidding ad tags that each ad tech vendor uses you know one or two different bot detection vendors so if i'm a website that's selling into a platform that uses bot detection a i'm going to go buy traffic that is engineered to pass filter a and if i'm selling into a platform that uses you know bot detection vendor c then i'm going to go buy traffic that passes vendor c and so there's an entire so market I for pre-filtered traffic, which is traffic engineered to pass specific... With this traffic, am I telling it to click on specific ads, or is it just hitting my page and... and it's just hitting really just annoying. hitting your page, yeah. Okay. But presumably, this type of traffic, when you buy it... Well, actually, let's just talk about that. So you have a WordPress site, eCelebNews.com. This is a site with basically the most useless content you could have... It never changes. I know that because I've gone there a couple times because I like the name. It never changes. It, it only has five actual articles, and it's clear that this is just a default WordPress template. You've got some stuff about Cameron Diaz and Angelina Jolie and 50 Cent. Just, yeah. It's eCeleb News. It's what you would expect from eCeleb News, except it's even worse because it never changes. So it's not even, it's not even news. You purchased traffic from eZanga to visit your horrendous WordPress site, eCelebNews.com. Explain why you did that and what happened. So I wanted to look at the Google Analytics and what showed up. And I also had three different detection organizations. You know, some are independent and some are you know, bot detection companies. And we consistently, over a period of seven months at different test periods, found that this traffic is, you know, anywhere at any given time between 
60 and 90% confirmed bots, depending on the vendor. So I wanted to see that and get independent you know, verifications that this is overwhelmingly very suspicious fraudulent traffic. But I also wanted to see what shows up in my Google Analytics site. And it all just says filtered by Ezanga, like every source, every refer also. So it's all coming from their servers. It's not coming from a previous website. So if you're putting search ads somewhere, you would assume that somebody's on a website where these ads are showing up, Google search, either a search engine or, you know, a search engine results page within another site, whatever that is. But the refers and the sources always came back as an eSanga server. To be perfectly clear, you are buying traffic. Why would a site buy traffic? Why would this be useful for somebody to purchase eZanga traffic? If they have ads on their page, if they have programmatic ad tags on their page, they can sell this traffic and generate it, sell this traffic, basically converting the clicks into impressions that generate revenue from ad exchanges. And if, you know, this is like the basic formula is, you know, you look at the number of ads on your page and you look at what you're paying per click and you balance that out with the CPM that you're getting. So cost per mil, so cost per thousand impressions. And you basically come up with a break-even point. As long as every click on my site generates more money for me from the advertising network, than it costs to pay eZanga to send a bot to me, then I am going to make money off of that transaction. Right, exactly. So your cost per click, your break-even cost per click is your CPM divided by 1,000 over your number of ads per page. So if you have four ads on your page, and if you're getting $2.50 CPM, so $2.50 for every 1,000 ad impressions, that means that the most you can pay per click is one cent. Four ads on a page, $2.50 CPM, you can pay one cent per click. And obviously we know that there's lots of subpenny clicks available in the market. So there's a lot of people making a profit on this model. How much leverage can you put into this? How much money can you make? Uh, it's the, I mean, it's unlimited. You don't have to just scale the volume of traffic on a specific site. You can just scale the number of sites that you have in operation. Right. Okay. And once you get once you get a certain level of hits, you have the Google Analytics to back it up. You just move into getting video ad tags, which you know we're switching from two dollars CPM to twelve dollars, fifteen dollars CPMs with video. So just to be clear, the scalable model of an ad fraudster is set up eCelebnews.com set up advertisements to be displayed on that site, pay for traffic that is cheaper than the ads that I am displaying on my page pay out. I've got an arbitrage there. I lever that up to as high as I can go. And then I set up beefnews.com and I do the same thing. (laughs) I lever it up. And then I switch to chickennews.com and then Mm -hmm. lever that up and you just keep going. Yeah, and now you've now you've got gourmet, you know, food recipes network and right. now you operate as, you know, the hub of an yeah, audience that yeah. is interested in gourmet food. Right. So we've explained why WordPress is 40% of the internet now. <laughs> yes. So when you had this traffic visiting eCelebnews.com, how did that traffic 
perform. Okay. You know, we did some tests with live ad tags, but, you know, I did that experiment last year. And the problem with that is you're kind of, you know, you can justify it as a test, but you kind of become part of the problem. You're stealing advertisers dollars and you're not the one that has the opportunity or the capability to go and pay them back. So did it at a small scale, but mostly I was interested in just showing what type of traffic this was. We know that it, you know, does potentially generate a profit in terms of ad revenue for people. If they have enough ads on the page, their site is set up correctly. But I was mostly looking at, you know, since they are selling clicks to the U.S. government. So they won a services contract from the General Services Administration of the U.S. federal government. And the General Services Administration basically handles, you know, things like transportation and communication and, you know, basic office things for all of the federal agencies. So let's say, for example, the State Department wants to, you know, put a commercial out for recruitment for employment, they will go through the General Services Administration to put that out. And the General Services Administration, is a, it's a huge organization. They've got a budget of over $20 billion every year to handle things like this. Before we get into the GSA stuff, the government contract stuff, you had some interactions with the sales reps at Ezanga. What did you talk to them about? My conversations with them were very frank. You know, they they know that I at one point was on the fraudulent network side. So when I reached out to them and asked for traffic, there weren't a lot of questions asked. So I basically sent an email saying, hey, I want to get traffic. They said, how many accounts do you want? I said, all five. So down the list of the five, you know, prominent bot detection vendors. And then I sent an email saying, what are the bid landscapes? Meaning, you know, what are the ranges of the cost per click that I would have to pay for each? immediately get a response, very helpful. And then I ask, again, this is you know me being devious on my investigation side, is I ask, what are the best places to monetize each type of traffic? And obviously, they sell a lot of this traffic to different networks, and they get feedback on what's working and what's not. And so he was able to give me that information as well. Do you have a picture for what the cost of the traffic that you brought in would have been relative to the revenue that you would get serving ads to that traffic? Because I know, I know, I think you said you don't monetize eCelebNews.com because you don't want to take advantage of the ad networks. You don't want to be part of the problem. But do you have an idea for what you would have gotten paid if you had those? The small, small test that we did was about. $2 to $2.50 depending on the day CPM which you know would have made a profit and depending on the volume and how much we ended up buying it mm. you know could have easily made you could turn $200 into $300 on a daily consistent basis wow and that was with a very small scale test incredible this is a one day turnaround time to arbitrage $200 into $300 yeah okay so let's talk about the U.S. government contract. The U.S. government has contracted out all of its pay-per-click advertising to Ezanga. Explain why this is problematic. I can't say for sure whether it's all. 
I know that they are one of the vendors because, you know, I, I don't have the full insight into, you know, I'm sure somebody internally is still using Google or Bing for pay-per-click ads, maybe even Facebook, but they are, you know, the one ad network that is outside of those giant companies that has won a contract. And that's based on a lot, basically a year of press that this company did on how they are a click filtering agency and a fraud prevention network, all the while they are selling pre-filtered traffic at subpenny prices. So I know that, I mean, given the size of the GSA, something is bound to slip through at some point. This only caught my eye because I had been watching and I had a Google alert for Ezanga. So, you know, when they released, they had that press wire in September of 2016, it you know, showed up immediately and I couldn't believe what I was reading. So I've been watching it since then. And I looked at the, over the services contract, everything, and, you know, they are selling pay-per-click advertising to the government at 10 cents per click, 10 to 20 cents per click. That's very different. Assuming it's the same sources of traffic that they were giving me, that's a huge bump up in their margin because I'm getting four tenths of a cent to 1.2 cents and they're selling for 10 to 20 times that to the government. So that's, you know, it's a big, big issue in transparency. So you're saying that not only did the U.S. government make a huge purchase that presumably would get them some sort of economy of scale on that purchase, they were actually just paying more for each click. For what it's worth. You know, you could spend a dollar or two dollars per click on Facebook or Google and say that you're getting, you know, whatever the market value is. But obviously with this ad network, there's the same type of traffic available for much, much less if you know how to approach the conversation. But obviously subpenny click prices are inherently suspicious and 10 to 20 cents seems like you're doing some public service by giving them a discount. Is the product that the government is purchasing here the same product that you bought for eCeleb News? That's what it looks like. They're not selling, you know, they don't have a separate safe network of traffic. I've gone through all of their different traffic sources that they have and none of it is legitimate in any sense. So, What is the internal narrative for the person at the U.S. government who made this purchase? Is it literally Ezanga is saying that they're going to get more people to view our ads? Is that the narrative? Or, or are they, or do they... Or visit, they also... visit something like a recruitment page or an awareness campaign or anything like uh, that. I see. So in this sense, the U.S. government probably views Ezanga as an advertising agency. The U.S. government probably sees it as, oh, Ezanga is going to market our recruiting webpage. That sounds great to us when, in fact, all that's happening is Ezanga is sending, quote, traffic to that page, which is probably bots sitting in an Amazon Web Services server somewhere. Data center traffic, right. yeah, all coming data from the center, server. It's data center traffic. What we found so, is that, you know, the general trend we see is about 90% of it is you know, kind of very blatantly suspicious. And 10% of it looks like it's human, but we think that's just, you know, pop-unders from either, you know, unknowing sites, toolbars, or porn sites. Right. So 
here we're talking about the traffic laundering problem. And I talked about this recently on Software Engineering Daily, where you've got this issue where... So this is actually where the where I feel it impacts the average user because the thing that people want to believe or a lot of people do believe is that, oh, you know, the recent election caused, you know, these shadowy Russians to set up propaganda because they wanted to influence the election. Maybe that's true, but it doesn't actually have to be that complicated. All it has to be is people set up link bait, people get emotionally charged. So like, Russians or Americans or whoever sets up, the Denver Guardian sets up link bait. Hillary Clinton is a lizard alien. And they get people to go to that because they get emotionally charged. And then they're able to get additional leverage out of the organic human traffic by also sending bot traffic. And you've so- shown me a variety of these schemes. You've shown me a very complex Facebook scheme that I'm hoping to talk to you about in the future that is horrifying so the the order you know sometimes it's that you get some human traffic and then you throw in robotic traffic to you know fluff up the numbers but a lot of times especially with social media sharing is humans are more likely to interact with it if they already see that oh this has been shared you know 10,000 times and it's got 50,000 likes or on twitter you see that oh it's been retweeted you know 25,000 times and it's been you know, favorited another 25,000. So, you know, that, that will make you more likely to engage with it if you see or feel, if you're under the perception that it's being engaged with by lots of other people, it gives it some, you know, illusion of legitimacy. And that's what's fueled a lot of that problem. So, you know, there are that, like that scheme that we've, you know, gone over several times of where they're just constantly throwing in robotic traffic as engagement fluff. But there's also where you don't even pursue human engagement until you've gotten it to a point where it looks legitimate. Just to take a step back here, because I, I need—I feel like I need to keep doing this, because at this point I've been reporting on ad fraud for like six or nine months or something. You know, it's something told, I, I don't know if you felt this way when you started reporting on it, but you're like, as soon as I start talking about it loudly enough, people will listen. People will start to care. They'll start to realize this is a giant arbitrage, and the way that the market treats arbitrages, as we saw with the mortgage crisis, is it levers them up insanely, like in such a dramatic fashion that it is collectively horrible for society, and yet nobody seems to care. I mean, I've talked to people in mainstream press, in you know the edge of quote-unquote press. I guess Software Engineering Daily now has to be the press in some I not to laud myself and not to laud you too much but nobody else is talking about this. I mean you talk to people at the government to try to alert them of this. What was their response? Well, the response was obviously, you know, great concern. Some organizations, you know, were worried about do they have the jurisdiction to do anything about this? Others were wondering, you know, is the money big enough to really pursue it's sketchy territory, and then it's also, you know, it's an unpaved path. So there's not a lot of precedence in here. So somebody who's going to be choosing to pursue a legal action on any type of ad fraud case is, you know, going down a path that hasn't been, you know, walked before. So I do understand the hesitation because a lot of legal proceedings rely on precedence, which makes things a lot easier. But with ad fraud, it's just not there. So... 
you know, I do want to keep beating the drum. I did take this story, you know, initially, as soon as I saw that press release of the government contract, I took it to a lot of the major press outlets. Obviously, they were interested, but, you know, they were like, oh, it's just, you know, it's not fully there. It's not fully juicy. And now, I don't think we got to this yet, but the new development is that Izenga is launching their own bot detection service. And that's when, you know, some people have definitely, it's piqued their interest because that is sending a much, it's blaring a big, big horn right in their faces that, you know, they're going to be on the, you know, they're going to create the supply and also be in the business of verifying that it's good. The fox guarding the hen house. Yeah, basically. So... So you got this report that you shared with me. It's like 16 pages documenting this stuff. Have you talked to Izanga about this yet? Uh, I have not, no. Okay. I know you have done... Uh, there's been other cases in the past where you've looked at these scams. You know, one of the other scams that I'm hoping we can we can discuss on Software Engineering Daily at some point in the future, where you have emailed people at the company and been like, uh, this is what I'm seeing when I analyze your traffic only from the outside looking in. Like, you do analysis from the outside looking in, you look... Here's what happens when I buy your product. Here's what happens when I interact with it from off-the-shelf services. Here's how much money I can make off of it. What do you think of my findings? And basically their response is, uh, nothing. Yeah, I've had, you know, somebody on the board of advisors of one of these big traffic scams and, you know, reached out to him on LinkedIn and said, hey, listen, you're obviously a very well-respected person in the advertising community. You're on the board of this company, which is very, very sketchy. I'm an ad fraud researcher. I'd like to share what I found with you. And I got a simple message back saying, no thanks. So with Izanga, they obviously will see this report at some point. They know I'm in the business of ad fraud research, yet they have shared you know, their information with me. And I do have to say that they probably could do a really good job of bot detection. Mm -hmm. Given that they were, you know, they're in the business of selling traffic, they have seen the worst of the worst of, you know, traffic quality. Sure. I don't doubt that they would be good at bot detection, but it's the, you know, with any type of verification, you're selling trust and you're supposed to depend on the integrity of the company. And I just, you know, I can't get behind the fact that somebody who's going to verify the quality of something also is in the business and has been in the business for years of selling extremely low quality web traffic, non-human. And by the way, the way that these companies work, I mean, I don't know if you ever saw the Enron movie, but it's like these companies, it's, it's often like one or two people at the top or three people at the top who really understand what's going on. They really understand how sleazy their business is. And then you've got like 100 to 1,000 people who are just like, hey, we're a bot detection company or we're a marketing integration company. And they only understand some subset of the company because the broader landscape is so complicated. There are people who are probably listening to this episode. They're like, wait, wait what the heck is going on with traffic? What is traffic? What like what is an arbitrage? Like they don't understand the big picture because it takes a long time to really understand it. And so, I mean, you could talk to people at at Izanga and they'll probably be like, "What are you talking about? This isn't no. We're just a marketing company." For sure, yeah. I mean, that's happened with you know salespeople there. But you know, I'm as close to a hundred percent sure as you can be that the, the people at the probably, top know what's happening. The same was probably true for what, what were these horrible mortgage companies during the mortgage crisis? You, 
Uh, I'm trying yeah. to remember the name, the names of them, but these companies that would just, they would be, I'm sure these, some of these salespeople were probably just like, hey, we're just giving people cheap mortgages. We're giving them a home. If she's seen the big short, there's a scene where the guys, Steve Carell's character, they, you know, his firm goes down to Florida to like basically meet mortgage brokers. And they're talking about how they get these applications approved with no down payments. They fudge the numbers. They get these bonuses. One guy's like, you know, I was like living, you know, like paycheck to paycheck and now own a boat. And Steve Carell's character is like, what are they doing? Why are they admitting to all this? And one of his employees is like, they're not admitting to anything. They're bragging. They don't see the bigger picture and the problem here. And, you know, I've seen this with, you know, you see brilliant engineers working at companies that do mass amounts of ad fraud. And I just think they spend their days coming up with amazing, you know, engineering solutions to little issues. They don't understand the implications that this is serving the mass tsunami of ad fraud. But they're smart engineers and they are solving problems that get presented to them on a daily basis. So we were just talking about Ezanga, but now you're saying that the type of culture that we're describing for Ezanga, where you've got just a few people in the company who understand the big picture, understand how much fraud there is, yeah. it's the same thing that is true for companies that begin with a G or begin with an F. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Conceptually, yes. Conceptually. You know, I, I can't say that that happened. Like, I have not right. seen any direct evidence of that, obviously. Sure. But sure. Yes. Sure. Okay. This gets to the two types of companies that conduct ad fraud as part of their business model. You've got blue-collar companies and white-collar companies. Explain the difference between blue-collar and white-collar ad fraud companies. So, you know, I always try to come up with things that make this easy to understand, you know, just like something in ad fraud that you can relate to. So I basically tried to separate ad tech companies, you know, whether they're traffic vendors or publishers or exchanges into white collar and blue collar crime. So, you know, blue collar crime, we think of as, you know, drugs or, you know, theft or violent crimes and white collar, we think of, you know, financial fraud, embezzlement, investor fraud, those types of things. So white collar ad fraud is when you are not in the direct business of transacting on non-human traffic or fraudulent advertising, but you do in the end benefit from it. And the majority of your revenue is not from non-human traffic. So let's take you know a digital ad agency that takes 15% of their client's spend as a management fee. They are what I consider generally white collar ad fraud companies because they are involved in the consumption of fraudulent advertising, which means that they're the ones buying it. They have direct brand and budget access, and they sort of you know, remain intentionally blind to the possibility or the existence of non-human traffic. So they're the ones kind of sticking their head in the sand. Generally, they're larger companies. Generally, they have you know, public exposure and a big name. And you know, again, the majority of the revenue is not from non-human traffic. So the common thing that they have with blue collar ad fraud companies is they profit from the buying and selling of this fake traffic. The blue collar ad fraud companies are not involved in the consumption of the advertising supply, the fraudulent advertising supply. They're involved in the distribution or the creation of it. 
they have lower direct access to the brand budgets, which means that they're sitting farther away from the actual advertiser. They're fully aware of the possibility of non-human traffic. And generally, there's smaller companies that you know do tens of millions of dollars in revenue, but you've probably never heard of them because there's no real reason for them to go out and seek public exposure. And this is the other difference between them and the white-collar ad fraud companies is the majority of their revenue comes from non-human traffic. As you know, the main source of revenue for these advertising fraud schemes is the brands who are ultimately paying for this. And I'm not just referring to brands like you know Nike or American Apparel, but also, quote, small businesses. So like my company, for example, I have, I have a software co- another software company, a different company from Software Engineering Daily. When we launched recently, we did some ads on Facebook, and we targeted quite micro. I mean, we, we I thought we did very narrow targeting. I guess I'm not a Facebook expert, but I mean, I've done so many shows about ad fraud. I thought I understood like what we would need to target to some degree, and every single one of the interactions that I saw looked like it was from a bot account. It was from some very strange name from like you know from India and and I was targeting people in the United States and so so very quickly I was like okay turn it off like this is useless it doesn't get us anything it gets us nothing but maybe I'm just unsophisticated I don't know the brands that you speak to on a regular basis is the tone changing are people starting to say oh my god we've been wasting money for such a long time I always caution, you know, them on overreacting. You know, there's what ends up happening is somebody in the marketing department of a brand, you know, a light bulb goes on in their head. They're like, oh, my God, we need to control this ad fraud problem. We need to cut off our exposure to ad fraud. And we're going to say that we have a zero tolerance policy for fraud, which I think is an emotional reaction. And, you know, it's it's an overreaction to the problem because you're not actually addressing the issue, which is fraud, which fraud exists everywhere and will always be there. You should try to make sure fraud or in any industry is, you know, a minimal percentage. You see estimates of fraud in, you know, advertising, digital advertising of, you know, some people say 10%, some people say 20%, as high as 30, 35% of the advertising supply they say is fraudulent. So, you know, that would not be acceptable in any industry where you say 10% or 30% of the commodity is fraudulent. But we should try to get to, you know, what I say is 2 to 5%, you know, is a healthy, you know, range because there's always going to be sophisticated fraudsters who will always find a way to commit it. You just have to make it as hard as possible. So with advertisers waking up to the existence of this problem and how widespread it is, Understand that it's a systemic problem. It's not, you know, that you need to immediately change agencies or you need to immediately shut off your campaigns. One of the general overreactions I see is, oh, we're just going to shut off programmatic because that's where the fraud is. And it's like, no, that's not where the fraud is. Like fraud, you know, you're going to see fraud in direct buys too. But you need to make sure that you're operating safely, asking the right questions, having processes in place. Fixing fraud within your advertising campaigns is not a flip of a switch. You can't just say, okay, I'm detecting with this vendor and now I'm all okay. Or I've shut off these sites and blacklisted them, now I'm all okay. 
It just that's not that simple. So you said direct buy. What is direct buy? So a direct buy would be you know instead of me going to an ad exchange and typing in on my you know whitelist, meaning like sites that I want to target and show ads on, New York Times and you know Fox News and Huffington Post, and rather reaching out as an like agency, reaching out directly to Huffington Post and saying, I would like to buy 2 million impressions over the course of the next two weeks. Ah, right, right, right. So a direct buy to the publisher, which, and I'm not saying Huffington Post has a lot of fraudulent traffic. I'm just, if you're, even if you're doing direct buys, you have an exposure to the fraud. Well, you could even imagine Software Engineering Daily, we air an ad for some giant tech, let's say it's SAP. Let's say SAP buys, you know, a million listens on Software Engineering Daily, that would be a good reason for me to go to a bot network and say, uh, I would like a bot network to listen to a bunch of podcast episodes, please. Yeah. And it would say, okay. And hey. there's actually, there's traffic vendors that offer that exact service. So SoundCloud listens, podcast listens, you know, that service is available. Do you think, <laughs> so this is like recently, uh, I released a new, uh, an, uh, an album on Spotify and I had some bots listen to it because i was like i wonder how many bots it takes i mean i didn't yeah. buy that much fake traffic but and i hope spotify doesn't blacklist me for this it was just an experiment i only bought i think 500 listens for five dollars <laughs> i just wanted to try it not bad. one cent per listen. i think it was, i think that's what the deal was but i was like but the experience made me think is this what drake is doing is this what <laughs> like is this what's running the internet i mean i listened to some uh, of the music at the, the top music, of the charts yeah. i'm like this is this is garbage is it yeah. just bots yeah, I mean, hey, there's. I've never actually looked into the amount of bots on these like streaming services, but it's definitely a service that's available. You know, you every a lot of traffic networks and you know bot softwares. You see yeah. that, you know, you all, I want YouTube likes or YouTube views or SoundCloud listens or podcast you know listens, like whatever it is. But yeah, it's definitely available. I can't say you know based on any evidence how big it is, but it's. Yeah. It's definitely available, and there's obviously the incentive for creators of the content to you know, access it. Okay, so just to wrap up, one more question. I know we're up against time. This YouTube stuff recently where advertisers are pulling their ads off of YouTube because of scandalous content. For example, there's you know like a jihadi video, and then you get an Estee Lauder ad served against it. And Estee Lauder is pulling their traffic from YouTube because of this problem. Is there any chance that this kind of thing spirals into a closer investigation of programmatic traffic, of fake traffic? Because these are totally different problems, but you could imagine one spiraling into another. And so I'll defend Google on this. And, you know, this, you know, I free consulting for everybody that's listening is it's user generated content on YouTube and you have a choice in any online advertising platform to run on a whitelist, which means I'm going to only show ads on specific YouTube channels in this example, or have a blacklist where I'll serve anywhere where my user targeting fits, except for these specific channels. Now, what my advice to everybody whenever I talk to someone is you have to have both. You have to have a whitelist campaign where you know that these are vetted channels that I like, I vetted the content over time. It's performed well. It gives us a return on our investment by showing ads to these users. And then I have another campaign where I'm obviously paying a lower rate, but I'm blacklisting sites and channels as I find that they're bad and then taking the good ones and adding them to my whitelist. 
Now, the issue with user-generated content, and this is you know a YouTube problem, is nobody that is uploading hate speech or extremist violent content is going to label it hate speech. They're going to label it as entertainment or education or news or whatever they want to do. So that's the issue with user-generated content. And you know, one of the policies that Google introduced was you can't start monetization until you have 10,000 views, which it's not a bulletproof policy, but it does make it more difficult for these channels to monetize. And again, the issue with this extremist content, you know, this was like the big spark plug for all of these public discussions was extremist content. I think it was ISIS related that was getting advertisers ads on it. They're not doing this to buff up their numbers and generate $15 from YouTube ads. They're doing this like because that's just a place to post videos and people can watch them there. So advertisers, I think, need to be wary of the fact that, you know, some of it is an overreaction. You have to give Google a little bit of leeway on user-generated content. I think they're doing the best that they can. I don't think they want to be in the business of monetizing hate or violence. But yeah, I, I just say caution on the overreactions because when we create policies as a reaction, we always do an overcorrection. And I think that's going to be dangerous in this sense. All right, Shaolin. Well, I want to thank you for coming back on Software Engineering Daily. Of course, my it's, pleasure. It's, thank it's, you it's for a pleasure. Me. Yeah, it's a pleasure as always. And I look forward to hearing about your schemes or other schemes you're investigating in the future. <laughs> I definitely look forward to coming back and sharing them. Okay. Okay.